Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I'm your host, Andreas Kasai. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring the groundbreaking journeys of Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color psychiatric and mental health nurses in their quest to meet the urgent and unmet needs of minority communities in America. We are so excited to talk to today's guest, so let's get started. Keith Carter, welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. Very happy to be talking with you today as we continue exploring the world of men in nursing. So let me start by asking you to introduce yourself to our audience. Hello, so my name is Keith Carter. I'm a psychiatric nurse here in Chicago at Rush University Medical Center. Um, I'm also a third-year psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, doctor of nursing practice student at Rush University as well. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. And how did you get into nursing? Uh, what was it about nursing that drew you? Because, you know, historically, it's been a profession that's been dominated by women. Yeah, that's a great question. I get that often. So ever since I was young, I definitely always had a willingness to want to help people. Um, I definitely wondered why people acted in the way that they did or what influenced behavior. Um, and then in eighth grade, uh, my technology teacher administered this lengthy survey that kind of would help us give some insight on what we want to pursue, you know, in high school with electives and in college and psychology, specifically like medical services was my number one choice. So as I moved into high school, I took like, you know, AP psych course and sociology courses, and I was definitely fascinated with that field. And then my father let me know that his partner at the time was in nursing in the emergency room. And he let me know all the stories that she had working with psychiatric patients and what that looks like in the healthcare setting. And that definitely fostered my interest in nursing because I was able to put psych and nursing together. And that's what led me to the profession. Did you get any pushback from anybody, not just being a male, but also as an African-American man in nursing? Yeah, it was definitely interesting because in high school I played football as well. And a big push in my community was to continue the athletics and focus on what I was doing there. And then the big issue there was it was hard to go a certain division in football or one of the bigger football schools and also major as a nurse. So I think that was the biggest challenge I had. So it led me partially to Illinois Wesleyan, which is a smaller school where I could do both. But as that continued, I focused all my path on nursing. And what did your dad say when you picked nursing? Uh, my dad was supportive. Okay. His partner's a nurse. My mother's a nurse. He's okay. pretty used to the field. And then he always knew that I wanted to go into something like medical, as I mentioned. So he supported in the sense that he thought it was achievable. And there wasn't like really the negative stereotypes in my house. So as I mentioned, his partner worked in the, the emergency department. And often males go into that high trauma, high energy field. Mm -hmm. So I think there was a lot of you know positives from that sense. Well, it seems there's also been a generational change, if you will. When we started this series of men in nursing, I spoke with uh, Dr. Chris Coleman. And when he mentioned to his father that he was going to pick nursing as his major in college, he said his, his father dropped the phone and it took a while for them to reconcile. But it seems now it's, it's a lot more accepted. 
but yet the numbers continue to remain pretty small in terms of men in nursing. Why do you think that is? And what do you suggest for the industry, how they can increase the number of men in nursing? Yeah, for sure. So I definitely think my experience was unique because it's one of those, um, you have the experiences of what it looks like to be a nurse. And although we've had some more acceptance, I would definitely say nursing is still looked at as a women's profession. And there's a lot of negative that can come with that in society and assumptions, different misperceptions, I think, that deter men. For example, like all male nurses are gay or they glorify the sexy nurse or even, you know, I've read some literature about men aren't perceived as caring. So why would they go into a field where they're meant to care for people? And then I also think just especially for black men, the lack of mentors and role models. So, you know, even if you are getting into these programs, how successful are you when you have people that don't look like you or people that don't put in the effort to make sure you succeed? So I think some things that are good to combat these issues is really just normalizing the profession to all, but especially towards young black males. So really discussing this as I got exposed to it in middle school, normalizing using gender neutral information when presenting the job to kids at a young age, even how you define emotion, you know, showing empathy, compassion, caring, conveying that is not stereotypically feminine, but as a neutral style of human emotion. And also just letting people know what it, what it means to be a nurse, just like the high energy, the critical thinking, the leadership, the really challenging medicine that goes into it. I definitely think things like that would really help more males get into the field. And then also the media, having some more advertisement with males, male nurses, you know, in shows, commercials. Yeah, absolutely. I think media would, would play a huge role if we got a a hit sitcom or a hit series on Netflix or something that featured a male right, nurse, right. That, that would be fantastic. So you work a lot with young people. Tell me, what is that like? What is the, like, the typical day for you at work? Yeah, so as a new grad, I started a therapeutic day school in Rush. Um, and that's where most of my career was at. So just to give you a background on what that is, it's for students that struggled at their school districts, whether they had an emotional disorder, behavioral disorder, autism spectrum, those among the few. So a typical day at work for that setting was you come in, and then it was a lot of kids may need their medication. A lot of behavioral modeling and helping these kids deal with stressors in school. So whether that's math, language arts, the social interactions that involve in school, and then working with psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, and the families to really get this kid a treatment plan that helps them really transition back to their school. So using like different sensory tools, um, different academic resources that they have, having modifications. And the second part of my job was working inpatient. So it was kids that were acutely ill, so at risk to themselves or other, whether that was suicidal or wanting to hurt other people. And there was just a lot of support, medication management, verbal processing, and kind of helped them get back to baseline to where they were no longer a danger to themselves or others. Does it ever get really heavy and hard for you? (laughs) Yes. And how do you manage that? The things that can be most heavy is the strengths and the power that you see in these young children and the resiliency. But there are so many obstacles that are out of their control, whether that's family trauma, racism in the world, just lower socioeconomic status, like all these barriers for them reaching their 
true self, you know, that they're sometimes out of control of just the hospital or the therapeutic school. And to help manage that is just, with the kids, it's continued support and definitely like motivation and helping them see their worth. Because a lot of times they have uh, many obstacles against them. And then for myself, it's also making sure that I have the tools that I need. So through exercising, eating healthy, faith, family, and then therapy services myself, having someone to check in with and just making sure nothing I'm doing is negatively affecting others around me. And most of the young people you work with, they're African-American or from minority communities? So at the therapy school, it was about probably 30%, which shows the disparity in education there. You know, we're in the west side of Chicago, but our population doesn't necessarily represent Chicago and the demographic of students in school. And then on the inpatient, more than 50% of the patients there are of an ethnic minority. And why is that? I mean, what's driving more young people from ethnic minority backgrounds into conditions of, you know, having mental health or behavioral health problems? It's definitely, I think, a multifaceted issue. As I mentioned, the, at the therapeutic school, a lot of these kids have the resources or come from the background or community where they have all these social workers dumped into them. You know, they have counseling, early intervention because they have the socioeconomic means and just the resources around their community to do so. Whereas a lot of kids that I see in the ED or on the psychiatric units are coming from foster homes where they're not fully supported or just the stigma in the African-American community where these kids aren't seeking. You know, they've been sad for a couple of years now and haven't really had any resources to help them. And then now they're trying to kill themselves. So we often just see it missed in our community, which can be very frustrating in that sense. That must be really hard because, I mean, traditionally in the African-American community, you know, anything that even begins to resemble mental health or, you know, issues that are related to depression and, and other things have been dealt with by the church. It's been, a, you know, the foundation spiritually for, for the community over the decades. Accepting that somebody has a mental health issue has been, I think, almost taboo. How do you get people to come over to you if they have a problem? So first and foremost, I want to say that faith, spirituality, community, like, they're excellent supports for mental health. Research proves that it can reduce social isolation, promote quality of life, and really help if there are some mental issues you're processing with. But as you mentioned, sometimes it gets a little worse where they can seek treatment. So to help those individuals, especially the kids that I see, especially the young boys, is normalizing it's okay to not be okay. And then I often let these clients know that they're not alone. I'm a voice there for them to listen without judgment, just empathy, really allowing myself to be one with their mind and being there in the moment with those kids. And then sometimes it's about educating the families, letting them know this is not just a phase or it's not just the blues. And then really discussing recovery and how treatment can help really affect the trajectory of their life and what the goals that they have and what they're able to do. So I think a combination of all those. And people are accepting of all of that, you find? At times. I think one of the biggest barriers is when the mental illness is very difficult for a child and then the, the option of medication comes up. So you can get the family on board for therapy or just 
having recreation activities, lighter, seeing a social worker, lighter interventions to help them cope through. But sometimes that's not all it takes. So definitely when it comes to medication, you can see more pushback from families. Are there experiences where you feel, okay, I have made a difference. I've saved somebody's life. Yes, many of times. I wonder, some, sometimes these things might be lifelong or at least it takes a while to get somebody really over the hump, if you will. How do you make sure that somebody has really, you know, gotten over their problems? Yeah, so that's a great question. So my original yes was in the moment with a child or a patient, they confide in you, they thank you for listening because oftentimes they don't have people to listen and just they talk about the positives and things they want to do. So that, that's a win in the moment, but it definitely takes a community It takes a community to really get the kids to where they need to be. So that's teachers, that's social workers, that's community youth programs, just having multiple mentors and families there to support them. I think that's where the difficult part is because it's like, I'm going to do my part. A child can leave my care. But then at the next stage in life, you hope that that next adult is prepared to, you know, work with the child and really understand their needs and not just see judgment or see be hindered by their behaviors. And do you think it makes a difference that you are male? Yes, especially with the adolescent male and child male population. Because as I mentioned, just the mentor and seeing someone who looks like them, I mean, who can confide with them and have someone there for them to listen to. They listen to me a little differently in the sense that the empathy that I could provide for them, I just think it makes them feel more comfortable and more able to open up. And do they find that kind of mentorship or, you know, somebody to guide them through this? Would they find that in any other service sector? Or is this something that's unique to nursing or psychiatric and mental health nursing? I believe they can find it in other sectors. I just think the difficulty is that not all professionals or individuals are prepped for certain work in other sections. So that's what can be difficult. So what I think is important is that teachers, coaches, law enforcement, Professions that work with youth are, you know, educated in trauma-informed care or de-escalation or just really the therapeutic processes that goes into conversations with the youth, especially those at risk for mental illness or suffering from symptoms of mental illness. So you just mentioned de-escalation. And one of the things that I read as I was doing your research is that for your DMP, your scholarly clinical project is to implement an educational module which includes evidence-based de-escalation and milieu management strategies to improve restraint and de-escalation practices. Tell me more about that. How do you do that? And how is that different from the way restraint and de-escalation has been handled in the past? So I'm implementing a project on a community hospital psychiatric unit right outside of Chicago. And the goal there is to really provide the staff with education. So I'm implementing a violence risk assessment tool which it's a scoring criteria based on seven different categories, which assess for aggression, like irritability, impulsivity, et cetera. And this um, screening tool has shown to lead the nurses and staff to the correct interventions to avoid an aggressive situation. And aggression in psych can be a common concern. As I mentioned earlier, you know, you come in an acute crisis and these violent behaviors can have consequences to staff, patients, and the hospital as a whole. Some of the issues with strengths for staff, for example, 
is especially mental illness, it gets minimized because we're working in mental illness. We should be used to this type of behavior, et cetera, which can cause, you know, just psychological harm by the professionals working in it. And then it also just increased the cost of the hospital, higher staff turnover, lower morale, more time off. Just not good for the people working in mental health. And then in regards for the pay, it's a compounded issue, you know, restraints, because with the patients, it's like there's, you know, risk of death with restraints, them getting hurt in restraints. It's a not therapeutic means. It's a, it's a last measure for sure. And then also if you think about just violence usually leads to the restraints. So if you look at violent behavior, it can really put these patients at risk for, you know, improper housing, negative strain on their relationships, issues with jobs. So that's why, you know, the goal of this tool is to really provide the staff with tools to decrease the potential for violence, which will ultimately increase the safety and decrease the amount of restraint uses on the unit. Very important. You know, one of the discussions we had recently was with Dr. Phyllis Sharps, who just retired from Johns Hopkins University. Her research focuses on intimate partner violence and maternal health, so where, where those things intersect. And one thing that really surprised me was the role that intimate partner violence has on the really high maternal mortality rates in America. So that you know begs the question, why are African-American men acting out in this way? What is leading to these really violent experiences in the home setting? And in particular, during that time of pregnancy. That's a great question. And the short answer is, I feel like a lot of kids are missing the early intervention. We had some research with one of my professors at Rush, and it explored provider responses uh, to youth sharing traumatic events. And a lot of these times, these kids feel like hopeless and like they have no place to go. Like they don't have adults that, are, that can support them in the proper means. And just these increased stressors, these day in and day out stressors can definitely compound the mental illness, whether it's depression, anxiety, so on and so forth. And as these symptoms keep building upon each other and lead the child into adulthood, that's where you can see the substance use, the negativity, and then a lot of that violence, acting out behavior, hanging out with the wrong crowd. So again, I think the early intervention is really where we need to be. And just creating more youth programs, having the staff to work with these children, show them coping tools. And I mean, honestly, it goes to early as kindergarten, even before that, just identifying emotions. What, what does anger feel like? What does sadness feel like? How does it make your body feel? You know, what can you do from this situation? What tools can you use besides aggression or isolation? So that's, that's, a, that's a big thing. I definitely, as I continue my work, I want to see how in the communities that I'm in, we can integrate this higher level of social emotional learning for our younger youth. And well, one of the triggers, I think, in Black communities or ethnic minority communities comes from the engagement with law enforcement. And, you know, a lot of really negative outcomes come out of that. We've seen the publicity around George Floyd and there's been a spotlight on how police treat people of color. And within that framework, we hear a lot about de-escalation now and the need to train law enforcement in these de-escalation techniques. Are you working with police? 
yourself? Yeah, so in my current job, I don't work often with law enforcement. However, a lot of the patients that I run into have had issues because I mentioned you know, a lot of these patients to get admitted inpatient, you have to have an acute crisis. And oftentimes I've heard stories or known patients that have been handcuffed in the back of a cop car and they're 12 years old because they experienced some aggression at home. And that, that never sits right with me. Basically, we're waiting until young people have that altercation with law enforcement before we get them into some sort of treatment program? A lot of the times, that's, that's definitely what we see. Adult and child patients are being brought into these services by law enforcement. How do we change that? How do we make sure that these interventions happen before there is that engagement with law enforcement? Especially since we know that those situations can turn out you know, quite horribly. Yeah, for sure. That's a great question. It's a loaded question. But there is a lot, I think, we can do, um, especially in the nurse profession. Because, you know, public health nursing is pretty coincided with psych nursing and just nursing in all, in all. And one of the biggest things I've learned through my career is getting involved in legislation and policy and then also research. Like, I've heard the term plenty of times, you know, racism is a public health crisis right now. So we really need to have the funding and the increased awareness to make change. So, for example, you can urge federal, local, and state agencies to, you know, add the death or injury by legal intervention to reportable conditions. We have the suicide, heart attacks. So people can get an awareness of how many individuals are having these injuries or deaths at police having more research that are looking at health consequences of law enforcement violence, whether that's post-traumatic stress disorder, increased need for having diabetes, hypertension, stuff like that. And then just really writing officials to get some changes in policy. The laws that decriminalize activities are shaped to target marginalized groups like traffic violations, broken taillights, loitering, and then just funding to meet basic human needs. That's food, housing, access to education, books. Have you considered perhaps going into the whole policy advocacy world, uh, including perhaps you know running for office yourself? Is that in your trajectory? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thoughts definitely ran through my mind. However, I don't think that's in the cards for me. A big thing that I like to do is I write to my local legislators. And if there's a bill that's coming and I, I think it'll affect the community in a positive way, I will write them and definitely persuade them. What impact does that coverage of George Floyd and then the Black Lives Matter movement have on the mental health of young people in America? You know, and how do images like we saw last week of Haitian migrants being attacked by law enforcement impact that? I'm from Ethiopia, I'm, I've immigrated here. So I haven't grown up in this system, but of course you feel it. And just looking at that, it, it was a, a very wrenching uh, image and, and images to see. And I started wondering you know, if this is something that you're constantly being um, faced with, you know, that in itself must create a mental health challenge. How do young people navigate that here? Yeah, for sure. As you mentioned that, I mean, I think back to my time and my undergrad, which was a predominantly white institution, and Ferguson was all over the news. 
it was really stressful in the sense that, you know, these people that I thought were my friends or I thought we were cool because we played football together were just making very ignorant comments about Black people. And the news coverage was biased. And it, it really brings you down. And it, it definitely hits at what you, you, what you thought were your support system. You know, the PWI, you don't have many people at all that look at you, look like you, I should say. I could name my Black friends on, you know, the 10 fingers of my hand. So... What's important is just to try to build a sense of community and find those that you can confide in during these situations and these times. I talked to, you know, some of the therapists that I work with um, and some of the therapists that I know in my life, and that has been a common theme in sessions. The negative image of Black people on the TV, the, I mean, the, the straight ignorance you see, I think it's at all-time high on social media from other people. So as a clinician, what I try to do is really acknowledge my patient's experience and their perceptions of racism. I have some patients that say, these racist white people, I'm going to be better than them. And it drives them to further their education and prove a point. And whereas other people, I've seen it exacerbate their anxiety and make them not want to leave the house. So it's really, you know, finding where your patient's at and then being able to support them and help them with their goals, motivating them, setting reasonable landmarks for them. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Have you been able to get somebody who was shying away from, you know, wanting to stay stay at home and not move forward with their dreams? Have you been successful in, in turning somebody like that around? It's in the process, for sure. Um, but on the personal note, like, outside of work, I've had family members that have been in funks. And that's, that's day in and day out work. And I definitely have made progress in that sense and showing them, you know, the light and hopes and letting them know that they're capable despite of what they see in the media or on the news. So definitely have had success from a more personal level. All right, let me turn now to um, COVID. And I mean, this is something that has impacted everybody uh, all over the world. How are young people handling COVID-19, the young people that you work with? Are there emerging issues that you see, uh, especially for young people of color? And also looking at you know, death rates in ethnic minority communities have been quite high, especially early on in the pandemic. And we have lots of orphans, and I don't hear much being said about you know, orphans, but are, do you, are you coming across children who've lost one or both parents during this pandemic and what's happening with them? Mm-hmm. So I've definitely had worked with some children who have had family members die of COVID-19. Thankfully, I've never had a child or a young person lose both their parents. But what I've seen in the child and adolescent population and definitely read articles about is just these higher percentages of anxiety and depression that we're seeing in our youth. Youth are less motivated to participate in activities Uh, having issues around the house, helping parents with chores. And then what we've seen a lot of these symptoms and, you know, issues can manifest as aggression. So kids are having difficulty transitioning back to school. You know, schools are opening up back in person, falling behind on grades, turning to substances, and just overall having a pessimistic view of the future. And in terms of staff, how has the present surge in COVID-19, like with the Delta variant, how is that affecting, you know, your colleagues, nurse burnout, nurse shortages, and the impact on behavioral health facilities? Are you seeing 
limitations in the number of people that can come in and you know the amount of time that they can stay? Yeah, for sure. So initially, some of the biggest challenges were families not being able to visit. And you have a six-year-old who can't see their parents while inpatient, like things like that was very difficult for families to cope through. In terms of staff, I think the staff has been very resilient. We've definitely worked together. My institution has put in a lot of efforts to make sure that the nurses feel supported, especially in mental health. So I think we've been doing well, but I have colleagues, you know, in the more acute units that are directly working with patients with COVID. And I think that's where the biggest issues arise. I have nurse friends seeing black and brown people die at disproportionate rates. And I think that's where the the biggest issue is. And a lot of support has been trying to get directed towards them. Let me turn it around back to the Minority Fellowship Program. So how did you get to be appointed to the MFP? Yeah, so um, my mentor at Rush, Dr. Dawn Bounds, she is a minority fellow. And she introduced, um, I was like a new nurse at the time, she introduced it to a colleague of mine who also now is a minority fellow alum. I remember she had to call off work for a few days. You know, she told me where she was going. I believe it was in Florida for, you know, one of the intensives. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> and I'm like, I, we were, you know, been in a relationship as colleagues. And I'm just like, how how did you get introduced to this? You know, other black and other minorities, people that look like you, they like mental illness, like want to help with mental health. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> um, so she definitely gave me the spiel and let me know what it was about. And then I was blessed to be able to apply and get accepted into the program. So definitely a shout out again to, this is what I mean, the importance of having mentors, having colleagues that look like you and people that can introduce you to these resources and different opportunities that you would otherwise know didn't exist. Because I tell you right now, in my undergrad, I, I probably would never been able to know this opportunity because there was no one that looked like me and people that really didn't have the same passion and interests that I did. And how important is that to you to be in this community of, you know, like-minded psychomental health scholars who also are from ethnic minority backgrounds? Yeah. So at first I, it was definitely intimidating. Um, I'm in the intensives and I'm just like, oh my goodness, these people are all geniuses. And I'm still on the younger side of my career. I, you know, I haven't finished my doctoral degree yet. So intimidating, but then that intimidation so quickly turned to inspiration. I'm just like, wow, like they all started somewhere. I'm like, this is where I want to be in the next five years, in the next 10 years. And it just gave me so much hope and just like passion. Like I leave some of the intensives and some of the PowerPoints and presentations just like feeling heavy on the heart with just glow. It's almost indescribable (laughs) how nice it feels to just see others like you. Five years from now, 10 years from now, where do you see yourself and where do you see the Minority Fellowship Program in your life? Five years from now, I want to definitely get established as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner, definitely understand and get a good grasp of my values as a practitioner and what I have to offer to my community and the patients that I'm serving. Um, I would prefer to go back to the suburbs of Chicago. 
and provide care there because it can get pretty scarce with the amount of providers that these children have access to. And then in 10 years from now, I want to be more ingrained in my community. And as I mentioned, helping build alliances with some of the elementary and high schools there. And then even doing stuff like coaching so I can be that be that adult that has the educational background to not only support these athletes in their physical well-being, but also their social emotional growth and just be somewhere to kind of help them guide them along their path. Um, and then as, as my role in the MFP, I'd definitely like to be a mentor. Through the MFP mentor-mentee program right now, Dr. Gomes has been tremendous. Meeting with her and just getting another experience and another situation and just wisdom. She tests me on medications and we talk about different case studies and just the benefits of having a mentor and someone to really confide in is amazing. It really helps me get through my clinicals and my grad program and day-to-day like that. Thank you, Keith, for sharing all of your thoughts and wisdom with us and good luck with everything. Thank you. I appreciate the time for you all having with me, okay? And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion, and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting minority communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Minority Fellowship Program is a SAMHSA grant-funded initiative. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. 